The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. The subject and purpose of his account of Jesus point to establish the deity of Jesus as the Son of God. John Gospels tells us of some of the miracles of Jesus. John called them signs. Without hesitation, Jesus also claimed his deity to the fullest extent, as he repeatedly used the title of I Am for himself. John composed his gospel to provide reason of saving faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written that you may believe. That we may believe. Uh, last week we took a week off of our study of the book of John, but we are jumping back in this morning to chapter five of the book of John. So meaning that we're starting back in chapter five, that means we've done chapters one, two, three, and four. And the apostle John is really seeking to communicate to us the deity of Christ and all that that means to us. It seems that chapter five, there's a, there's a, there's a change in chapter five, there's a, an emphasis on not only the deity of Christ, but all of a sudden the Jews are persecuting Jesus. Uh, they, they say there's seven signposts in the book of John, seven major miracles. We looked at two, the first of which was Jesus turning water into wine. The second one was the healing of the Roman son. And this morning, we're going to look at the third signpost, which is the healing of the man at Bethesda. Now, you probably are familiar with this miracle. It's one of those common miracles that we've heard. If you've been raised in church as a little kid, you've heard about it. That's why it's one of the signposts, one of the significant ones. And as you think about these signposts, these miracles are a demonstration of who Jesus was. But a lot of times, people get really caught up in the miracle and not what Jesus is communicating in the miracle, right? Uh, this morning, many of you, probably the vast majority of you, came to McGregor Baptist, McGregor Baptist Church via Colonial, and you probably saw our sign out there saying McGregor Baptist Church. And so you turned in off of Colonial into the church parking lot. But you know the sign is not the church. It's just the sign. It's the designation. It's the direction. We the gathered, the assembled together, we are the church of Christ here at McGregor. See, these followers of Jesus, it was easy. They were following the signs, but they were missing what Jesus was seeking to communicate. So here in chapter five, we see this shift of attitude from those followers that were excited about the signs and they were marveling at all the works of Jesus to all of a sudden these Jews were feeling threatened by what Jesus was doing and the following that he had. And so it's a trigger, if you would. And now all of a sudden, there's this persecution by the Jews. So if you turn, have your Bibles or your app on your phone, go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses. But before we do, before we read it, um, how many of you all in here like to read the end of a book first? Like you get a new book and you're like, let me just see how this book ends. You know, you're, you're one of those that likes the ending. You want to know what's going to happen. Okay, yeah, there's confession, all right? Now see, I'm not that way. If I know the end of a book, I don't want to read it. If I know the end of a movie, I don't want to watch it. I have a problem watching a movie or a show twice, you know, because I know the way this ends. It feels like a waste of my time. Well, risking that 
that I'm going to do that this morning. Uh, a little spoiler alert, if you would. I really believe that the key to our passage this morning in John 5 really comes at the end. And so I want you to look at verse 16 with me before we read the verses. Verse 16 says this, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this persecution of Jesus came because Jesus was doing something on the Sabbath. And here's the idea, is that this, the power of false religion, the power of following false teach, teaching is, is really restrictive. One can be so committed to ideas or teaching or rituals that they fail to see the truth that is right in front of them. See, Jesus could have had done this miracle that we're going to read on any other day of the week. And as you're going to see, he could have just not told the man to carry his mat. But he did it on the Sabbath. So we'd have to ask ourselves, why on the Sabbath? He was getting these Jews' attention, and he was teaching us something in the meantime. So let's start in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man that said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who, who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, that not, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working so I'd broken this down into three elements, if you would, the setting, uh, personalities, and the warning. So let's look at the setting first, those first three verses. What we see is, before I jump into the setting, I ought to probably point out, if you have an older translation, like the King James Version, you're going to note that there, are, there is a 3B and a 4 included in your translation. In more modern day translations, like the ESV that I just ran out, read out of, the NIV, you're not going to find those verses, so why? Now, you'll probably find it footnoted, and the reason is that in the, the, the manuscripts that were used to uh, translate it into the King James, those verses were there. 
And then they discovered manuscripts that predated the original manuscripts that they used to translate. And these verses weren't there. So what they suppose is that there was a scribe that had written out to the side an explanation to verse seven, which verse seven says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So it makes sense that it might have been a little explanation to verse seven. But regardless, it doesn't change our miracle or what Jesus is teaching us this morning. And so what we see is this is at the Feast of the Jews. We don't know what feast it is. It could have been any of the major feasts, uh, Passover, Tabernacle, could have been Pentecost. And the feast doesn't seem to be significant. But Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem for this feast as most good Jewish men would have done. And it says this, this happened in Jerusalem by the pool at Bethesda. It's a sheep gate. And a sheep gate would have been where they brought in the sheep close to the temple to be sacrificed on the altar. Bethesda, meaning the house of mercy. This, this pool, kind of like a, maybe a community pool, people would gather, get out of the sun underneath these five porticos, cool off. But it was also known for this healing property, probably superstitious, Stirling, stirring of some kind of water, maybe a natural spring. But it all happened around this pool at Bethesda and the people. The scripture tells us that there were a multitude of invalids. We don't know how many invalids. It was clearly more than one. Some suppose that there were hundreds of invalids that would gather at this pool hoping to be healed. We also know that there were many people because in Jerusalem because there was a feast and there had been many people traveling to Jerusalem to gather together so there's many people. And we also know that there are many people following Jesus. So there are a crowd of people. Luke 12, one says this, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So sometimes these crowds were not always a good thing, were they? But there were a lot of people following Jesus and gathering together. But remember, these crowds were mostly curious onlookers when it comes to following Jesus. They were intrigued by what he was doing. They were still bound by a false religious system that had a lot of control over them. But the invalids, these people that would gather there hoping to be healed by these waters would be in mass number. And, you know, you, you think about this superstition, superstitious nature of this pool, and you think, well, that's kind of crazy. You know, why would why people do that? And then you think about, I'm a Floridian. Uh, you know, St. Augustine is pretty famous, and what's it famous for? The fountain of youth, right? So if you take this sip of this, this water from the fountain of youth in St. Augustine, you're going to be young, how many of us wouldn't? No, I'm not even going to ask that question. And then I get emails into my junk email account all the time promising all kinds of things. You too? You know, people buy in. You know how they, they stay populated, right? Because people are paying for these things. They're superstitious. They believe these things will actually do things that they promise. 
So it's not out of line with what's happening here. These people were gathering together superstitiously thinking that these waters had some kind of healing properties and they would do something for them. But then we see these personalities, three key personalities. First of all, the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's amazing, the compassion of Jesus. In Psalms 119, 77, it says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. See, here in our story this morning, it's an illustration of the incredible compassion of Jesus. You've got all these invalids. This man had been at this pool repeatedly over and over and over again. He'd been an invalid for 38 years and Jesus steps into his life, has, takes sorrow, sorrow, pities him. But more than that, he does something about it. And that's what real compassion does. Unfortunately, compassion is something that we seldom see in this world today. We're filled with indifference and cruelty. Most people don't seem to possess enough selflessness to act compassionately. You know, I think that's why we marvel at our first responders. You know, men and women who rush in when everybody is running away from I can't help, couldn't help but follow, as many of you probably follow the story over in Surfside about the condo collapse. And I was amazed to hear the stories of those firemen, paramedics on the scene that were working that rubble, knowing what a gruesome, gruesome thing that they were doing. And the heat, the rain, the danger that they were putting themselves in. And yet I read stories about these men and women who said they didn't want to be pulled off the scene even after they had worked long and tireless shifts. They didn't want to give up the compassion of individuals that are willing to go the extra mile and do something. They didn't only recognize that there was a need, but they were willing to step out and step into somebody's life and to seek to do something about it. Jesus, Jesus was a man of compassion. Remember the invalid in our story, in our, in our narrative here this morning would have been an outcast in that society because they would have seen that the result of his, his that sin was the result of his status as being an invalid. They would have not had anything to do with him. And I couldn't help but think about just a couple weeks ago when we studied the the Samaritan woman, how Jesus decided to go through Samaria, not around it, but through it, and then to engage with this Samaritan woman. See, Jesus was about breaking all kinds of barriers in his world through acts of compassion. These acts of compassion may be rare, but they're significant and they reflect our creator I couldn't help but think of some of the things that our church has done. You know, the fact that we have our food pantry and our clothes closet. A few years ago, through one of our hurricanes, you know, we took up an offering on Sunday morning and we blessed people that were struggling. 
You know, I think some of our greatest moments as a church family have been when we sacrificed and acted compassionately on behalf of others. And Jesus asked this question. He says, do you want to be healed? It seems like a crazy question. Who, he's been coming here for 38 years. He's been an invalid for all of these years. Would you ask, do you want to be healed? You would assume that one would want to be healed, right? Clearly, the question was used to get the man's attention. It's not a, hey, how are you? Or, hey, how's it going? But do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? Clearly, he was at the pool to be healed. Or maybe... He was coming to the pool for so many years and so often that he had gotten very comfortable in his little spot at the pool of Bethesda, his little seat. He'd been so comfortable there that he really wasn't expecting any kind of healing. He wasn't expecting anything significant in his life at all. Maybe he was even afraid that healing would change his life too much. You know, there's too much to give up. He'd grown comfortable possibly in his beggar's little salary that he was making, comfortable in his standard of living. Healing would have changed so many things for him. Maybe he really wasn't interested in making changes at all. Regardless, the question secured the man's full attention and the truth is that we all can get so comfortable in right where we're at that we fail to see and to recognize what Jesus is doing in our life. See, the truth is that as we preach the gospel, people can get so comfortable in their seat that they don't even hear the gospel. They aren't even aware of what Jesus is seeking to do in their life. And then we see the, this compassion of Jesus on display. He tells us, gives us three imperatives here. He says, get up, take up, and walk. Notice that this man's healing was not based upon anything that he had done. It's true, sometimes in scripture we see that the apparent miracle was a result of somebody's faith, but not here. Jesus stepped into this man's life, offered healing regardless of the man's faith. The reason that some people give for the lack of the healing in somebody's life is because, oh, you just don't have enough faith. I've walked with several young adults through the years through a cancer diagnosis that ultimately ended in their death. And in both cases that I could think of, they told me that there were people, godly men and women in their life that told them, if you just believe, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. It's funny, I've walked through that same process with many senior adults, and I've never had a senior adult tell me that anybody told them that. Hmm. So is it just young people that have the issue with having enough faith? Or could it possibly be that we don't really know the will of the Lord? See, I believe that God has called us to prayer. 
I believe that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, but I don't claim to know the mind of the Lord. God heals whom he will. We are called to pray for one another, but we leave the consequences to the Lord. See, it's God's compassion. It's the same kind of compassion that, God, that moved God to send a savior into this world. That's the compassion of who God is. God's love is unconditional and it's apart from anything that we have done. It's not of our works, lest any man should boast. And then we see the cruelty of the Jews, the cruelty of the Jews. If you look at verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. So first of all, the Jews focused on this man, what he was doing with carrying the mat. And then in verse 16, we see, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So who were these Jews? They were the Jewish leaders the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the Sadducees, these leaders in this Jewish community, they were, had a very vested interest in protecting the status quo. What caused the persecution? It was Jesus acting on the Sabbath. It was this healing. And the man carrying this mat, it was the trigger of the persecution. And we're going to see more and more of that as we lead to the cross. And ultimately, the Jews crying out, crucify him. See, Jesus intentionally healed on the Sabbath to confront the power of this false religion, the power of this control that this, these Jewish, Jewish people had over their people. See, the, the Sabbath was at the heart of the Jewish worship in Jesus' day. And keeping the law, every little dot of the law was some sort of righteousness. And Jesus came to set the men free from that law. There's a huge lesson here. The real power, there is real power in following a false teaching, false doctrine, false beliefs. We can become so zealous in our religious mode that we fail to see and listen to the heart of a living God. See, Jesus' refusal to abide, abide by man-made regulations, which they were man-made regulations regarding the Sabbath, was a major contention between him and the Jewish community. See, he didn't fit into their box, did he? He didn't fit into their little mold. And so they didn't like that. And so they started persecuting him. So many people in our world seek after a God that they can put in their little box instead of the God that is of the Bible. Today, there's a major cultural issue going on. And it's, it, it's this religious people, people that act religious, wanting to adjust God to who they want instead of listening to the truth of scripture. It's taking culture, society, feelings, and saying all these things should adjust, should make my religion what it is. And I'm a religious person. And if I'm a religious person, then I love God. 
See, a culture of adjusting scripture according to our culture, feelings, and desires is ultimately the same as these Jews adhering to this, these laws, these man-made laws. And Jesus used this healing to challenge, to challenge these Jewish leaders on their religious system of their day and to break free from those laws. And to be clear, the issue was not breaking God's command. For Jesus fulfilled every law and was completely subject to it. The only thing being broken was the pharisaical interpretation of the law. All those added ons. For Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's interesting. The Sabbath was to be a blessing and they had turned it into a burden. It's so easy to do, isn't it? So easy to see how God wants to bless us and we can turn it into something that is unhealthy. When I was growing up and when I was in high school, I had a couple friends that came from a home that was very, very ingrained in our church, in our Southern Baptist church. I did not grow up with that, in that kind of environment. But these individuals, their fathers were deacons in our church and you know, they had certain things in their life that they had to live by on the Sabbath. Now, in particular, I, I thought about um, this one girl who she could come to church, she could come to Sunday school, she could come to worship, she could come Sunday night to church training, she could do church choir, youth choir, she could do church on Sunday night. She could go out afterwards to eat. She could go out to people's houses and play games. But she wasn't allowed to go to the beach. Now, some of you may have grown up with some of those rules and regulations that were imposed on a Sunday. But I couldn't help but think as I was studying this passage, preparing for this morning, is you know, that's the nature of man-made rules and regulations. Now, I'm not condemning them. You know, and I don't know all the what-fors either. But what I do believe is that when we start adding to God's word, it's so easy for us to start complicating and making it no sense. And it's illogical for me as an outsider and a person that didn't grow up in that kind of home. It just, I'm like, what? You know, it just was very confusing to me while that, the excuse for her not being able to go to the beach was it's the Sabbath. Just confusing. See, I think that the part of the problem is we can look so much on the, on the outside. We can get so caught up in the exterior and we neglect the heart, which is really what Jesus is after. I was reminded of 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at his heart. I think that living by the list of rules and regulations and the law oftentimes can lead us right into that. We're looking at all the exterior and we're neglecting the heart. And then we see the complacency of the man. Complacency of the man. See, no, Jesus found the man. You know, it wasn't like Jesus was hiding. He wanted to be found. He made it known who he was. And Jesus told him, told him to sin no more. Jesus' statement indicate that possibly that this man's status as an invalid was because of something he had done. 
but Jesus tells him to go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And we think, 38 years of being an invalid? What could be worse than 38 years of being an invalid? What could be worse than 38 years of being an invalid? Spending an eternity in hell could be worse than 38 years of being an invalid. The man went away and he told the Jews who had healed him. It seems that this man took sides. He decided that he was going to stay true to his Jewish roots and stay bound to that legal system. Maybe he understood that the possible sentence for carrying a mat on the Sabbath was being stoned to death. Too high of a price to pay. So he turned his back and aligned himself with the Jewish leaders of his day. So yes, it's a a miracle, an incredible miracle. But I think it's really a, a miracle that's communicating to us the power of a false religious system. And then finally, we see the Lord's warning. In verse 17, it says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And you could say, Carrie, how is that a warning? Notice this, Jesus answered them, right? He's answering the persecution. And he says, my father is working until now and I am working. Remember the first four chapters of the book of John have expressed the deity of who Jesus is. And here in light, in spite of the persecution, Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I am the long awaited one. I am the anointed one. I and my father are working. We are one. So in spite of the persecution, Jesus identifies himself as one with the father. And what's he working toward? What are they working toward? The redemption of man. See, breaking the strongholds of the false religion and allowing one to enter into a personal relationship, restoring man into that personal relationship with Jesus. See, Jesus was confronting those strongholds that the law had over the people. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. No one is good enough. See, that law that they were abiding by, that they were, they were controlled by, that system of regulations and rules, they thought they could be good enough, but they'd never be good enough. And you know, we know today, in a lot of spiritual conversations, when you ask somebody, how are they gonna go, going to heaven? The answer is by their good works. And yet Jesus says that our good works will never be good enough. That it's by grace and grace alone that we will experience eternity. And yet, in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love, love, his compassion to us that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son, Jesus, into this world to redeem us. See, I think that's really what this miracle is all about. To break the strongholds of the law, of the the control of the religious system, 
and honor Jesus. Now, this morning you may say, well, I don't have any of those Jewish regulations and laws. Think for yourself. I think we, as 20th century Christians, oftentimes resurrect resurrect all kinds of laws, rules, and regulations. We put things in a box around us and we make people think that this is the way you have to behave, this is the way you have to live. We could be guilty of the same control of religious systems if we're not careful. And the good news is that Jesus has come to set us free from that. There's freedom in Jesus. So this morning, I don't know where you're at, um, but I believe that God is seeking to communicate these truths. And there's a reason why we have this passage of scripture, this miracle this morning.